We are closing out a series called Set Apart, and I want to go ahead and just give you the last final recap, if you will, as to why we called it Set Apart, and hopefully change a little bit of how you read um, some specific words uh, in the Old and New Testament, all right? So we're going to go to our series verses. This is the first one, 1 Peter 1. This says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the grace of salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. You must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You, don't, you didn't know any better, so he's just kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. And then he goes on to pull that from the, uh, he pulls it from a passage from a statement from Deuteronomy from their first five books of the Bible. He said, for the scriptures are going to say, you must be holy because I am holy. And again, that's not necessarily the way we would oftentimes use the word. Yes, God is holy. And when we think about that word, we think perfection. We think uh, unstained. We think kind of unattainable, really. It's kind of this so picture perfect that it's unattainable for us to think of ourselves. And yet you're going to read a lot of scripture that says things like, I want you to be holy. I've called you the holy ones. I want you to live as a holy one uh, that I've called you to be. So there's a lot of this we have to understand what does he mean. And, the, and again, he pulled that from the, the Hebrew word holy, which has these parallel ideas of being separated or separation from something and separated for something, all right? So that's, that's the way we picture and, and want you to see when you read the call to be holy. It's separation from. From what? Well, it's from sin, right? Separated from your old life, separated from your old way of doing things, separated from sin, and set apart for what? Well, it's separate, separated for, set apart for God, right? For his purpose, for his mission, for his plans in your life. Matter of fact, this is what we read in 1 Peter 2. This is the other verse of our series, you are not like that. He was talking about people who live in this world. He says, you are a chosen people, a peculiar people, a holy people, royal priests, holy nation, uh, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show other the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then he actually goes on, I didn't read this in the other, other weeks, but he goes on to talk a little bit more about kind of our role and how we live out these holy, set-apart lives. And this is how, what he says in verse 11, just a couple verses later. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, those are kind of interesting words that he uses to give God's people, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among unbelieving neighbors, then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. He says, I want you to live not just set apart, but in in, in your mindset, I want you to have these words in your head as temporary residents, you know, as foreigners. And, And those are interesting words. That, that, that Peter would use. And you're actually going to see some of this in the Old Testament because he was talking about the Jewish people oftentimes living in land that wasn't theirs. So they were kind of always talked about as kind of foreigners and temporary uh, citizens of a place. You also see it as sometimes in the New Testament. And as you see it in the New Testament, it is always talking about God's people. 
God's people, he kind of identifies as being temporary residents or citizens of this world and foreigners to, to, to sort of the old life versus their new life. Now, here's how Jesus uh, himself said it. This is the, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, this is one of his final prayers for you and for me and for the church. He said, I have given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. He's just crying out to the Father. He says, they don't, they don't belong to the world. I didn't belong to the world. And he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Uh, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. And then watch this. This is Jesus using that word, holy. Again, that same Hebrew word. Make them holy, set apart by your truth, right? Teach them your word, which is truth. So we get the, the, the set apartness by the word of God, by his truth. He says, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy. How again? By your truth. So this interesting dynamic comes up when it comes to the idea of being set apart. And we don't want to miss this. It's, it's this idea of being a temporary resident, right? Temporary resident foreigner. And that we're, if you've ever heard this phrase before, in the world but not of the world, nod your head if you've heard that somewhere growing up or something, right? In the world but not of the world. It was Jesus' way of kind of describing this idea of like you are going to be in, you're, you're, you're in the world, but you're not really from there. You're not supposed to represent the world. You're not supposed to reflect this world, right? And so I just want you to know that when it's written this way or when you see some of these phrases, um, they're supposed to be, it's supposed to be written in such a way that gives us a big deep breath, okay? It's supposed to be a a relief for us that we can breathe a deep breath to go, you know what? We are a part of a temporary world. We are. God's people, as God's people, as God's part of his kingdom, we're a part of a temporary world. We are somewhat foreigners. We're not, in, we're not of this world, but we are in this world. And we don't have to hold this world together. He holds this world together. And the things that we're dealing with are temporary as well, right? Your home is temporary. Your jobs are temporary. Your, your family is temporary. Your friendships are temporary. Your stuff is temporary, Right? Listen, nations are temporary in light of God's kingdom. Nations are temporary. Dynasties are temporary. Empires are are temporary. And this is the way it's written because it's written in light of God and his kingdom, of which you and I are a part. And so I want to just set this foundation because we're going to talk a little bit today about two ideas that are a little hard to kind of put together But I want you to see where they cross and where they intersect, especially when it comes to kind of our call in this season to be set apart. And it's the rise of what's called ex-evangelicals, okay, I'll explain that in a minute, the rise of ex-evangelicals and Christian nationalism, okay? Uh, Christian nationalism, you can call it political Christianity or whatever you want to call it, but it's it's primarily in, in modern terms used as Christian nationalism, okay? Now... Exvangelicals is a play on the word evangelicals, all right? And to be an evangelical, most Christians are considered evangelical because 
An evangelical is just saying that you believe your faith is to share the good news of Jesus with others. That's what being an evangelical means, to evangelize. Like the majority of Christian denominations all fall under the evangelical banner, if you will, to share the message of hope and of Jesus with the world. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, because we've talked about moralism and you know, last week we talked about anxiety and uh, the, a couple weeks ago we talked about the people who are rejecting the truth, who are rejecting faith, rejecting God, rejecting the church. Um, some of those are rejecting them because of indifference. Some of them are rejecting uh, God because of, or, or, you know, the church or whatever because of impartiality. It's all one big, you know, any road leads to God kind of thing of spiritualism. But there's another kind of group on the rise and that's what they call these ex-evangelicals who are kind of shedding the weight of the word evangelical or shedding the weight of what they see as evangelical because, okay, they're shedding, they're shedding it because the message is no longer, in their eyes, the message is no longer that Jesus forgives sins and redeems sinners. Like that's not what the message is anymore. The message has been buried by a sea of political Christians who want to help America become a good nation that God will be happy about. Everybody with me? Follow me? Okay, so it's this idea of like, what does it look like to, to, to have a nation and have rules and behaviors and systems and programs that a bunch of Americans will look more and more like what pleases God, and that's sort of the message that's being evangelized. Oh, Jesus is in there too, but he's just, you know, it's just getting buried among everything else. And so there's a lot of people who kind of, the rise of Christian nationalism and the rise of evangelicals are happening at the same time because one is causing the other. Because it's, it's part of it. Now, please don't get uh, any type of political Christianity or Christian nationalism, don't get that as a, as a, as a, a way of saying that patriotism or love of your country, because that's what patriotism is, by the way. Patriotism is love of country. All right, and, and, and I'm a Canadian, and I, I have people that I know that are patriots. You know, they love their country. They love Canada. Uh, I, you know, there's lots of American friends that I know. That are, they're patriots. They love their country. But, you know, I've got friends in Haiti who love Haiti. Okay, they love, the, they love their nation. They want their nation to be the best. They want their nation to do well. I got Kenyan brothers and sisters who love their tribe and love their nation of Kenya and are proud to be Africans and Kenyans. Does that make sense? So, so patriotism, it's not a bad thing. Like so the love of country is not a problem. What we're talking about in terms of this idea is this Christian nationalism, if you will, or, or when Christianity gets really muddy and political and tries to make America kind of a reflection of, of God and a reflection of Christians, which is a really awful looking picture, versus what you know, evangelicals are called to share, which is that Jesus saves and redeems sinners. Because that's the actual message of hope that we're called to share. So again, the rise of evangelicals, all that is there. Now, here's what I know to be true. Two things. One is most of us, um, we assume, especially when it comes to political stuff, uh, well, number one, most people don't enjoy talking about it. And by the way, I'm not going to talk too much about political stuff today. Just to let you know. Everybody just take a breath. Okay. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm not trying to get you. Listen, the way, the way politics works for most Christians is they just kind of fit it into their own view and understanding of Christianity. Okay. 
Like that's, they just write it in, okay? So most, most Christians are like, look, it's really clear, okay? Jesus is sitting on the right side of the throne of God. Everybody with me? Mm-hmm, right? Right? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Mm-hmm, libertarians, any libertarians in the room? You know? My, 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 my Democrat friends are like, hey, who made sure everybody was fed? Jesus, right? Okay, didn't deny anybody food at the, at the tables, at the, uh, the, the bread and the fish. Nobody got denied. You know, there was leftovers for everybody. So just, I get it, okay? And, and, and what happens? Well, we have a hard time distinguishing whether something's a spiritual issue or a moral issue or a political issue and policy. And what gets muddy in all of that is the fact that it's usually all of them, right? It's usually all of them, or it can be, for sure. So here's what I know to be true. The other thing I know is that everybody really does want what's best. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about the evil people in the world. Evil people want what's evil. I get it. But everybody that you and I would primarily con- you know, connect with, everybody that we talk to really wants what's best, but no one, okay, no one, no one group, no one party, no one you know, ideolo- ideology, no one can actually agree what the best is. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Right? Everybody wants what's best. We can't agree about what the best is what the best policy is, what the best law is, what the best course of action is. That's where we get lost. So I don't want to go down that path today, but I do want to just kind of talk about, well, what does it look like, especially in this next year, as we engage in some political conversations, as we engage in some social conversations, what does it look like? Where does God sit in the midst of this conversation? And what does it look like for you and I to really be set apart in this? What is going to set us apart in these conversations? And that's where I want to start kind of looking at today. So I'm going to dive back into some uh, historical uh, record of the, the, it's about 500-ish, 500, 600 years before Christ, okay? It is the, the end of the Jewish empire, I would call it, or nation, and, and, and at that time, the Jewish nation had already been split, and there was a split kingdom, and blah, 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 and, and some had already been conquered, and this last remaining sect of Jewish, uh, Jewish rule was kind of at that very end conquered. They were conquered by uh, the Babylonians. So the, the god of the Babylonians was Marduk. And so the way it was kind of seen historically is that Marduk and King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians finally, finally squashed out and took out all of you know, the Hebrew and the Jewish faith and God and, and people. Okay, that's, that's, that was kind of this part of history. Finally got rid of that section uh, of, of the world. The Babylonians ruled a, a huge amount, um, and there were exiles and refugees just everywhere. Okay, so that's, that's where we're going, all right? So this part of Daniel, chapter 4, is a, almost a, it's a narrative. Daniel wrote it, but it's a, it's a testimonial written in the voice of first person, written in the voice of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's written so much like the, that it's the testimony, if you will, of King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar was, again, the, he was the one who helped conquer uh, the Jewish nation. And so in verse 1, uh, go back to, to verse 1, it starts with this. Oh, it starts in verse 4. You're right. Okay, my bad. All right, good job. That was a test and you passed. Good job, Tim. All right. I, Nebuchadnezzar, right? This is, this is the setup. This is in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. 
But one night I had a dream that frightened me, and I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling all the wise men of Babylon so they could come tell me what the dream meant. So um, he calls all the fortune tellers and wizards and so forth and so on to come and kind of help him and, and the head leaders of all, all of Babylon. He, he calls them all in to kind of help him. And at this point, Daniel was already kind of above the fray. He'd already kind of made himself known, him and his friends, uh, him and his Jewish friends. He called him something else. I think it was Balthazar was his name in, in, in Babylonia. But he was Daniel from, from our stories, Daniel. And Daniel... He, he kind of already knew something was different about Daniel when it came to dreams. So he goes and tells Daniel the dream. And he says, Daniel, I know you're going to have the answer. I know you're going to be able to tell me what the dream means. Okay? And I mean, it's, it's a crazy dream. He goes on to explain the dream. That, and it's, I don't know how to explain it. It's a big tree. I mean, a huge tree. Think Animal Planet, you know, down in Disney. Think Animal Planet, but like 10 times bigger than that. Like it was, once, it was like all the nations of the world could kind of like cozy in the, the limbs of this tree right? That's how big this tree was. And then an angel shows up and basically says, destroy the tree, like cut it down, take the, rip it apart, take the leaves off. Like it was a very descriptive, like destroying of the tree. And the, and even the stump itself was bound to the ground. And, and, and then the angel basically says something or decrees something at the end of this dream. And here, here's what he says. So he's, Dan, he's telling Daniel the dream and wants Daniel to interpret it. But this is the last part of the dream where he, the angel decrees. By the messengers that it's been commanded by the holy ones so that everyone will know that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses. Even to the lowliest of people. Probably not the greatest thing for a king to hear, okay? Because paraphrasing that is saying, God rules it all, uh, and he chooses who's in charge, even if they're dumb. That's what he's saying, okay? Everybody with me? That's kind of what he was saying. So it was a very, it was insulting, and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar heard it in his dream. Like, you know, the most high rules, and gives and chooses whoever he wants to lead, and even if they're the lowliest of people, he chooses them, okay? So King Nebuchadnezzar's like, well, what does it mean? And Daniel, Daniel's kind of nervous. He knows what the dream means, and it scares him. And he tells, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, oh, I wish, I wish this was a dream like one of your enemies had. I wish this was a dream an enemy of yours had. So he goes on to explain what the dream means for the king. And here's what he says. This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the most high has declared will happen to my lord, the king. Showing respect to King Nebuchadnezzar, you will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time are going to pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of this world and gives them to anyone he chooses. I like the fact that Daniel doesn't repeat the lowliest of men part because the king probably already heard that part, right? He doesn't repeat it. He just leaves it there. But the stump and its roots, because this is part of the dream, that were left in the ground, this means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. There was a lesson to be taught. Now, you'll have to read the rest of Daniel to find out that this did, did actually happen. Um, he was on top of his roof, you know, touting how great his kingdom was. 
uh, a voice spoke. He was immediately struck um, with this illness and basically ate, you know, the grass like a cow, like a wild animal for seven periods of time. We don't know if those are years, but periods of time. And then again, this is, this is written in such a way that it's his testimony. So at the end of Daniel, in the very last few verses of Daniel, it says that when his sanity came back to him, it was just immediately clear. And he uses the same words that, that, uh, that um, Daniel said, that the most high rules, that heaven, I had to learn that even though I, quote unquote, my kingdom, I was so great, it was all about me. He's like, I had to learn that even my kingdom was given to me by the most high and that heaven rules. And so this is the, this is the thing that I go back to often that can help a lot of people immediately be separated from and set apart, especially in the cultural, political, social ideology conversations of our current day and age is just the fact that as followers of Christ, we come with a perspective that no one else has, which is that heaven rules. Heaven rules. Yes, this is the current government. Yes, it's the current leaders. Yes, it's the current thing. But leaders and governments and empires and dynasties have all come and gone, but heaven continues to rule, right? So this is, this, is a, this is an approach that should change the way you have these discussions because heaven rules. And then, listen, the immediate pushback for most people is, well, what do you, you know, if heaven rules, if God's ruling everything, why is everything such a mess? Why, why is everything such a problem? And to quote the great modern philosopher of Taylor Swift, uh, you know, hello, I'm the problem, it's me. Everybody with me now? To quote her, like, it's us. The reason everything is horrible and evil and, and messy is because of mankind. Not because of the fact that heaven doesn't rule. It's because we're involved. That's the reason it's broken. That's the reason it's fractured. That's the reason it's dysfunctional. Doesn't change the fact that heaven rules. And so we know this to be true. Okay? God, his plans have survived every faithful and unfaithful leader in human history because they're his plans and heaven rules. That's it. Okay? His plans, meaning that his overall plans for what he plans to do is going to happen no matter what. Why? Because heaven rules. And it hasn't mattered, the, unfa- the faithful or the unfaithful leaders. God put David in charge. He also put Saul in charge, who was unfaithful. God put Samuel in charge, or uh, yeah, yeah, uh, he put, uh, nope, yep, nope, nope, why, Solomon, (laughs) there's too many S's, he put Solomon in charge, right, the wise men who lived, but he also put some really dumb kings over the kingdoms of God, like, just understand, when you go back and look, it didn't change the fact that heaven rules, and it did not change the fact that God's plans were going to happen. And guys, this is what we, we are witnesses to. This is what we are called to be. We are called to be some of the most confident people on the planet. And every two to four years, especially in the Western world with the elections and the things, and everybody's just freaking out, where are the Christians? We're all freaking out. We're just like everybody else. And we are temporary citizens of this world. 
We are not supposed to be freaking out as we reflect the fact that we belong here. We don't belong here. We are here for a reason. We're going to talk about more of that in a minute, but that's, that's what God has called us to be. So this approach is an approach that you have to understand that if you enter the conversation that heaven rules, it changes everything about your conversation, especially when it comes to political things. But no matter what, heaven rules. Now here's the problem. We read scripture with a very Western America, you know, mindset. And it can be very dangerous. And I want to just give you some examples, okay? But I I just want you to hear, if this is your life verse or something that you have like as an email signature, I'm not picking on you, okay? I'm just giving you two verses that are very often and and commonly misapplied in terms of our Western thinking, okay? Here's one. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and restore their land. Now, let's be honest. How many of you have seen this on Facebook with an American flag behind it? Right? I'm not not knocking the verse, okay? These words of God came to Solomon after he had finished building the temple. And it was a significant moment because he had finished building the temple that his dad wanted to build and couldn't finish, and Solomon did it, and, and, and God was restoring you know, this closeness that he was going to bring from the Holy of Holies, something they hadn't had since the years of tabernacle. So th- it was, this was a good thing. And he basically was coming to Solomon and said, look, I'm going to restore this, but it's going to require people to repent and to confess So it's not a bad thing, but this so oftentimes my people gets kind of turned into America, right? This my people kind of turns into the people who think like me, who agree with me. That's who the my people are. And it so often becomes, again, uh, a false understanding. Worldwide Christianity right now does not belong to the United States. It belongs to Africa. I don't know if you knew that. Now, America might be the largest country in terms of a a country, in terms of the number of people who claim to be Christians, but in terms of worldwide movements, it belongs to Africa. Okay, more Christians per, per person belongs to Africa. Next is not us, it's Latin America. Next is still not us, it's Asia, where a majority of the places it's illegal. And then it's us. Then it's North America. Okay? These countries are the ones that are sending missionaries to us right now. And I don't say that to, dis- to be despairing about the United States. I'm just saying it to say that, the, the, you know, if you talk to Christians, the global south is right now where the revival is happening. It's where the majority of Christians are. The majority of denominations in the next 25 years, their home offices are not going to be in the United States. They're going to be in Africa. Because that is where the world is pulsating right now with Christianity and it's sending people out and millions are coming to Christ. It's beautiful. But we have to, again, just got to be careful when we read this to not let it get caught in that lens of just me and my Western thinking. Here's another one, just real quick, okay? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and hope. 
And again, I'm not picking on you. This is your life verse or your, you love this verse. I love this verse too. But this verse, again, gets so misapplied to you. You. You is you. By the way, you is not you. It's not you. I'll say it again. It's not you. This verse is not about you. Okay? This verse was very specific in context as to who it was about, which was God's people for a very specific period of time. And even then, even then, the context is not what you and I would consider to be what that verse even says. That nothing, you know, he doesn't want anything bad for me. These people that he was writing to were exiled, captives. So I want to I read you the context because I think there is something to learn from the example of this Old Testament. Again, you've got to read it and learn from the example of this Old Testament story. You can't, learn, you can't put yourself in there. But you can learn from what, what it says and why it says it. Okay, so Jeremiah, Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet, and he wrote to the people like Daniel who were going to be exiled into Babylon. As a matter of fact, the context for this verse is written to Daniel and his friends. So I'll show you real quick. This is verse 1. 29.1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders and priests and prophets and all of the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the audience he's talking to. Go to verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven armies, the God of Israel, says to the captives. He's exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens, eat the food they produce, Right, keep going. Marry and have children. Find spouses for them so they may have grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you to exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Why? Because its welfare will determine your welfare. And then he says... This is what he says, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I'm going to come and do all the good things I've promised for you. I will bring you home again. Why? Because I know the plans I have for you. Right? This is him saying, look, it's going to be 70 years. The majority of you aren't even going to see it. Your kids might not see it. Your grandkids probably will. Okay? But, but I, I, this is not time for a holy huddle. Okay? I want you to bloom where you're planted. Like th- this is the message. Bloom where you're planted. Yes, you're captives. Yes, you're in exile. Yes, you're being judged. And yes, God has allowed all these things to happen. But I'm telling you, it's going to be for my plans. It's going to be for my glory. I'm going to use it all one day. Trust me, I have plans for the good and for hope for you. And by the way, it wasn't Israel to have a nation. It was Jesus. That's what he was talking about. It was Jesus. That's the plans I have for you. So if you want to take a lesson from the context that that verse comes from, it's fine. If you are here, God has you here for a reason. Right? You're here for a reason. As a temporary citizen, again, because heaven rules, work for and pray for where you are. Its welfare does determine your welfare. And I'm absolutely convinced that every Christian in the world can read this and take this example to heart no matter where they live, no matter what government authority they have, because that's the way the Word of God is meant to be read. Not within your, just your context. It's meant to be read. Look, if you're here, you're here. Praise God you are born in the USA. 
I mean, thank God for it every day. It's a blessing. Thank God you're here. Work for it and pray for it for its peace and prosperity. You want what's best? Great. Work for it. Pray for it. Do it. That does not mean try to, try to make America a reflection of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is greater than that and bigger than that. Don't reduce God's kingdom to some American ideal. It's not it. It's not enough. That's too small. God's kingdom is so much more. And you are a part of it. But you're here. You're a citizen here. You were born here. You love, you know, you're allowed to patriotism. You're allowed to love your country. Get involved in local politics. Get involved in state politics. Get involved in all these. Have a say. Do what you know is best for people. Serve them well. But never lose sight of the fact that heaven rules. Heaven rules. Pray for them. Its welfare does determine your welfare. And listen, you can put that across any Christian in every nation. They would say the same thing to you. My brothers in Haiti would say the same thing to you. That when Haiti heals and Haiti gets better, everything will be better for Haiti. Okay? Doesn't change the fact that they're called to share the hope of Jesus. That's a given. They're, shared, they're called to be a representative of the kingdom of God. But listen, people, I'm telling you, people struggle with this, especially, again, we read it through a Western, we get Western eyes on this, and it's like, ah, I don't know, and I can't, and not my president, and all this sort of thing. And, uh. and I have some people tell me sometimes, like, surely God doesn't want me to follow this heathenistic, godless leadership rules. Really? You know, when Jesus came, Jesus never once tried to change the rule of Rome's leadership. Never once. He never once tried to make some rules, you know, try to alter things for the Roman government so that it'd be easier for his church that he was going to start. Right? He never once tried to alter the... As a matter of fact, every time they told him to get into power, get into government, Jesus kept saying, no... My kingdom's not from here. My, my kingdom's not of this world. That's not, what, that's not what this is about. And the early church, <laughs> the early church was born during one of the most hostile, barbaric rulers in Roman history named Nero. Nero. I want you to see what Paul wrote to the Roman citizens that served Jesus under Nero, under a barbaric, pagan, godless, evil emperor. This is Romans 13. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Then do what's right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they will have the power to punish you. 
They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes too. This feels like an add-on, doesn't it? Feels like an afterthought, but it's important. Pay your taxes too. Why? For the same reasons, as he said, in terms of rule and authority and honor. Um, Government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So how would you like to be a Roman Christian during the time of Nero? And to go to a house and hear Paul's letter that says, obey your authority. They're God's servant. Do they know that? Does does God know what's going on? Do they know they're God's servant? Usually no. Even Nebuchadnezzar didn't know, right? No, they usually don't know. What Paul's saying is the same thing we were saying. It's the fact that no matter what, no matter what we see right now in the temporary, heaven rules. And this call to to obey. Now, I'll be honest, like I have, a, I have a slight nature within me, okay? I have a slight nature within me to rebel against rules that I think are stupid. Is, is anybody else in the room like that? Sorry, kids, didn't mean to say the S word. All right, so I, I, I have that, okay? I just want you to know, that's within me. I have that within me to want to kind of push back and kind of rebel when the rule is stupid. But I'll be honest, like, and we can have lots of conversations about this, but I just don't get any biblical backing for that. I don't get any biblical sort of backing and, 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 and sort of like, Matt, you, you're right to do that. It's okay, you know? It's okay. That one doesn't apply to you. It's, it's a call for me to understand, again, if heaven rules, and this is temporary, don't, don't hear me say it doesn't matter. That's not what temporary means. Temporary means it might matter right now in the moment, but it's not something to divorce your family over. It's not something to, 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 to exile friends over. It's not something to, 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 to burn down bridges when we're called to be bridge, building bridges with the gospel. Does that make sense? So don't hear me say it doesn't matter, because a lot of these things do matter, but in the grand scheme of things, they are temporary. To the king that I serve in the kingdom that I'm a part of. And so, here's some of the ways that Paul and Peter challenge us to be set apart as we live this out and walk this out. Here's what he said to the church in Philippi. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, you're going to value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. This is why we're called to serve one another. Like part of how we share the absolute hope of the gospel is by the way we serve one another. And I'll just be honest with you, it's hard to serve people that I'm currently in tension that I don't like and am kind of an arguing with. Like if I'm constantly in this kind of state of, well, you're wrong and I'm right, I can't serve you very well. I can't take your interests at heart. We're not going to agree on what's best. 
but it doesn't mean that I can't serve and love you the way that God's called us to. Here's how Paul said it to the church in Galatia. He says, you know, you're called to be free, but you're not going to use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but you're going to serve one another humbly in love. Your freedom comes from being a part of this eternal kingdom. Your freedom comes from you serve now the king of kings. He says, but don't use that freedom to just indulge yourself. He says, the entire law is fulfilled when you keep the commandment of loving your neighbor. Those who don't think like you, believe like you, and talk like you as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, you will be destroyed by each other. And quite frankly, this is the result of political and social conversation. There's just a whole lot of biting and devouring of one another. And there is no unity. There's no community that's safe. But there should be among the people of God. There should be. Because we have a different perspective. And here's the way Paul said it again. He he was talking about, listen, when your flesh kind of lives itself out, when you live just according to your own desires, he gives a whole list of things. It looks like this, it looks like this, it looks like this. He says, but when you live by what the Spirit produces, right, when we reflect the kingdom that we're actually a part of, he says that's the fruit of the Spirit, it's love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against these things, there's no law. Right? It was his way of telling the church, listen, you're never going to be arrested because you're too joyful. Unless you're drunk along the way. You know, like, like, you're never going to be arrested just because you love someone. You're never going to be arrested because of your forbearance. He's like, there laws, okay, laws, we know this to be true. Laws are the bare minimum. They're the bare minimum of existence. Don't do this or you'll be in trouble. Don't do this. It's the very bare minimum. Okay? That's what laws are. But laws don't inspire us to live like Christ. It is the fact that we're connected to this kingdom of God, serving our king, living as Christ among others, that we're able to live out love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And and they can't stop you no matter where you live, no matter what country you're a part of, no matter what the rules, no matter how down the drain things sort of get, it doesn't stop you from living out the spirit within you to every single person you meet. Here's your final verse. This is from Paul to Timothy. I urge you first to pray for all people. This is just, a, you know, the idea of what prayer looks like. Asking God to help them and interceding on their behalf, and giving thanks for them. So he describes what praying for people looks like. Thanking God for them, interceding for them, you know, asking God to help them. (laughs) And then he says, uh, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so you can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This pleases God, our Savior. Again, I'll share very quickly. I've not been overly impressed the past couple decades with American politics and governments and who the presidents have been and not been and who governors and things have been. I've not been overly impressed with pretty much anybody. Um, but I've prayed for them. And, I, and you need to understand, it's, it's because of the discipline that I know I'm supposed to. Okay, so just hear me say it's not because I'm, it's not a holy or nothing. It's a, I'm supposed to. And so when I get really upset 
with, with leadership, when I get really upset with government authorities, when I get really upset with anything going on politically, I can tell I haven't prayed in a while. Everybody with me? Because, because there's just something that happens when I begin to pray and ask God to help them. To intercede for what they need. To, to pray that God would move on their behalf or people in their life would share hope and, and, and the gospel with them. There's something that happens to me, not to the problem, but to me when I pray for them like that. It helps me remember that heaven rules. I'm not going to still like them or the thing or the whatever, you know, whatever I'm upset about. I'm not going to like it, but it changes my heart. And I really do feel like that's, that's this call, especially in this next year. You're going to have to decide, what does it mean for you to be set apart in this conversation? How are you going to remember heaven rules? How are you going to continue to work for and pray for? Well, you're here. You're, you were born in this country. You have incredible rights to vote and, and do things. You guys can run for local politics and and, and government authorities, and you can make changes. Like, I, I, I encourage people to do that. Like, this is, a, these are, this is what you've been given the opportunity to do, to work for and pray for the peace and prosperity of the city and the state and the county that you're in. Bloom where you are planted. But how is it going to look different? How is it going to be set apart because you are in this world, but you are not of this world. I think that will change. It could. It's potential to dramatically change the way you and maybe the people in your life approach this next year, this next season. Maybe, just maybe, we can have a, a large group of Christians just not freaking out. Not freaking out when everybody else is just neck deep in the chaos because we remember that heaven rules. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for um, your word and the way in which it challenges us. And God, I pray that that would be the thing that sets us apart today is everything written and spoken by your word, not my opinion, not not our thoughts and opinions and conclusions on the matter, but God, your word brings the truth and we can be holy by the truth of your word. Set apart in, this, in the political and social discourse of this nation. God, I pray that that would be true of us. And as your Holy Spirit just convicts us, as you continue to move uh, in and through our lives over the next year. God, just continue to give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be able to share your absolute hope even through some of the most difficult conversations we face. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.